You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Over the years, I have written here and there in little bits about Carmel, Indiana. Whenever I do, it has engendered a lot of, of feedback from people to the point where I've kind of resisted like jumping all in, even though I think the place is begging for me to do that. There's certainly a lot of people on the ground who are. One of the people who has pushed back is a guy who I have a lot of respect for and really like his writing. Aaron Wren, you may know as the Urbanophile on Twitter and other places. He's with me on the line today. Aaron, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you for having me on. I know we talked about, it was kind of proposed as a, a debate, and I said, I don't really want to debate. I would like to talk about Carmel. I actually, in preparing for this, just wrote like a long list of questions I have. I actually have like 20 questions. <laughs> Why don't you give me your kind of 101 background on, on Carmel, and then maybe we can just like delve into, uh, into the place a little bit. Sure. Carmel is a suburb of Indianapolis. It has around low 90,000s. It essentially is a combined city township. The government's not organized that way, but it's, it's sort of like those big square uh, suburbs you often find in the Midwest where they've essentially taken over the township. It's immediately adjacent to the north, uh, to Indianapolis to the north. It's in the middle of the favored quarter. US 31, which is a divided highway, runs right through it, and there was a sort of an edge city type of office district. They have about six million square feet of office space, maybe more. Traditionally, the most upscale suburb of the region, there are a lot of estate homes there. A lot of billionaires live there to the extent that there are billionaires like uh, Jim Ursay, the Colts lives there. Mitch Daniels, uh, the former governor, had, had has a house there. It's traditionally that kind of a place and really to the exclusion of other places. There's a town next to it called Zionsville that also has a, a similar type of exclusive rep. But uh, the, the former managing partner of my consulting firm in Indianapolis said he's never been in a place, a city or a state, where there is just one rich town. It was almost like the kids from Carmel High School, if they play any other team in the, in the state in sports, it's always like they're the rich kids. And, you know, even in like the Twin Cities, there's there's multiple upscale suburbs. Indianapolis, a lot of that has been concentrated in Carmel. There, there are other places with high income people in them, but kind of reputationally, it just stood above as that. So that's really what the community is. It was kind of originally a railroad stop community, very sparsely populated until fairly recently it had. 3,000 people in the township in 1990, I saw. So it was getting bigger before some of the other places. I think Next Door Fishers, which is now another 90,000-something suburb, only had 7,000 people back in that era. So it was kind of the established suburb of the era outside of the city-county merger of uh, Indianapolis and Marion County, You know, traditionally very upscale. The, the other kind of notable thing about them is they kept – as they got big, they refused to build a second high school. 
So now they have the largest high school in the state of Indiana. They're quite a powerhouse in sports for that reason. And I, I guess the other thing I'd say is, you know, traditionally what you would expect a very overwhelmingly white family oriented suburb, you know, today I think it's far more diverse. The black population has tripled, um, still small, but has tripled share of black population is up. Uh, I think 14% of homes speak in a language other than English at home. I think there are a lot of uh, Indian and Chinese PhDs who work for people like Lily there. So it's become a more diverse community. And like many suburban communities, school enrollment is now in decline. The community is essentially approaching build out. And because of aging in place and other things, you know, despite having this great school reputation, I believe enrollment is actually peaked and at the elementary school level, at least, is now in decline, which is happening in a lot of suburbs. Sure. Let's talk about the things that Carmel's known for in a positive way. One of the reasons why it came to my attention early on was that they were doing, I don't want to push this on the new urbanists because I, I, I think that Carmel would be controversial within the new urbanism, but there's certainly like a, a strain of new urbanist thought that really focuses on the quality of the place, the design, uh, the layout. Carmel has embraced a certain form of building construction yeah, I wouldn't label it new urbanism. It's certainly not like standard American suburban fare. How would you describe it and maybe put your like most positive spin on their approach to, to design? I, I would call it new urbanist. Okay. Uh, now, there is a, a, a development there called the Village of West Clay that is a classic new urbanist subdivision, basically. Sort of, I, I would guess, similar to maybe what they did at Stapleton Denver. It's old timey houses with front porches and the garage in back, but it's still, and there's some integrated retail, but it is essentially a subdivision built in that way. And that's what I stereotypically think of as a new, new urbanist development. They've also built a lot of mixed use type of buildings that front the street, um, both along their main street, which has essentially been completely remade over and transformed as well as around certain other strips that they have uh, zoned. They put zoning overlays on Old Meridian Street, Range Line Road, which is the historic kind of uh, main commercial drag of the of the town from probably back in the 50s or 60s that is kind of an old suburban form that's essentially fallen into decay. And that's where most of the large-scale redevelopment is occurring. So they've got kind of urban-style building all over the town, one thing I, I neglected to mention is unlike a lot of these county seats, Carmel was not the county seat. It had essentially no historic downtown. It had a, a district of, a, of kind of houses, cottages, but the commercial district was pretty bleak and small and just a handful of like one-story buildings and, and not at all like a town like Noblesville, which is the county seat there, which is a really historic commercial center. Carmel just never had like – the types of like strong town environments that you would say build little infill into from a commercial perspective, that kind of courthouse square environment did not exist there. Um, but they have done that. They have explicitly done it with retro architecture. Uh, I think the mayor is very clear that he's not a big fan of kind of modern or contemporary type architecture. So there's definitely kind of, you know, colonial style architecture, second empire. It's a combination of styles but it's it's kind of designed to be sort of retro nostalgic 
And then, you know, the public art, for example, that they've bought, they bought a lot of public art and a lot of it's uh, sculptures by Seward Johnson, if you're familiar with him, the kind of the, the Norman Rockwellish uh, types of things. And so that is that has kind of been the style that they try to do. But there is quite a bit of that in the city, in multiple districts. I would say in general, it's more or less a subdivision oriented city. And the main commercial corridor on US 31 is built out, was built out a while back prior to the current administration there. And is was essentially in a edge city form. They have become known as the roundabout capital of, I don't know, the, the universe, <laughs> North America, uh, certainly Indiana. Talk a little bit about kind of their commitment to, I think you would just maybe say like progressive or, you know, less kind of old school traffic engineering kind of standards. I think you're right for, from a strong town's perspective to be skeptical of them to some extent because they represent a rival vision of how the suburb can be successful. You, I think if you sat down with Mayor Jim Brainerd, who's the mayor of the city, who's, I think he's now in his fifth term, you guys would probably agree on an awful lot. He may not phrase it the same way I'm going to phrase it, but I think what he would say is he looked at the northern suburbs of Indianapolis that were annexed into the city via the city-county merger, but which are still very much suburbs that you'd find anywhere. And he saw that they were just sprawled, that they had kind of poor infrastructure, that they just kind of took what growth the market was was creating. Then when they achieved build-out, they started to go into decline. You know, the housing is no longer the, the current fashion. You know, we've moved on to, to power centers, you know, and close malls, then lifestyle centers and whatever the latest iteration is. So a lot of the malls were dying. Aging in place population, no new generation moving in. The amenities were very poor. The, the story arc of the suburb as we know it, and I think as you've articulated, that ultimately what happens when you're shiny and new, you're doing well. You're growing in population, which drives your unit costs down. Uh, your taxes are low. You look great. You have no liabilities, no union problems, no nothing. Then you, you kind of get old and mature. All of a sudden, you're now facing all these liabilities coming in. And you start to die under the weight of the liabilities. And because the liabilities attach to the territory and not to the people, the people can just skip town to the next suburb route. Exactly. And that's the Ponzi scheme. Exactly. Yep. I think Carmel saw the Ponzi scheme and took a very different approach to the strong town approach. They essentially said, we're going to take the opposite of the strong towns approach. <laughs> yeah. going to, we are actually going to invest into producing actual high quality urban amenities, infrastructure, et cetera, while we are in our growth phase so that when we are complete we have an essentially unreplicable environment that will retain its allure in a way that these earlier generations didn't. So just as a few examples of what they did. I'm so happy you're describing it this way because you're, you're actually saying, I have agreed with every description you've given so far. Yes, that, that is it. Keep going. What they're basically saying is, we're simply not going to accumulate infrastructure deficits and other deficits, we're going to make the investments as we go. We're going to bite the bullet and spend the money to build out proper urban amenities for our city. Roundabouts is one of them. They installed a couple modern roundabouts early on, 
and apparently they were fairly popular. The mayor just kept building them. And now Carmel has 120 roundabouts, I believe, which is more than any other city in the United States. And actually, this, they've become very kind of hot throughout the country. And most of the other suburbs are copying elements of what Carmel's doing without using the C word uh, because the place sort of has such a, you know, the urban people hate them. I mean, you, I mean they're kind of hated because they're the rich community, in a sense. But like next door, uh, Fishers, which is a much more traditional, sprawly suburb, it has 15 roundabouts. So you can see that they've really, they've built some, but not as many. Carmel has also taken their, call them collector streets, if you will, the sense of the county line, excuse me, the section line roads, right? That mile grid that the townships of the Midwest were straight out on and have upgraded many of those road, roads to very nice parkway, eight to 10 foot side paths on both sides, landscapings, medians, etc. So they have put an enormous amount of money into streets. Now, have they finished, fixed up all of their streets? No, they have not. But but they did do that. You know, when the current mayor came into office, you know, there was less than 100 acres of parks. There's now over 1,000 acres of parks. I haven't spent a lot of time in their parks, but their parks have a very good reputation that they've built a lot of money in parks. They've been investing in their water system. The, the city of Indianapolis actually provided service to part of the city. They managed to fight a bunch of fights with them and get control of all the water lines in their city and invested in a lot of treatment and other capa pumping capacity. And for example, a couple of years ago, when every place else in the region had essentially a ban on water, you know, watering your lawn uh, because of the heat, they were just said, keep pumping and keep watering your lawn. We've got plenty of capacity here. What I was told from them was the issue for these other places wasn't that there was a shortage of water, it's that they didn't have the treatment and pumping capacity. And so they did. So they've invested in all these things. And they've also done a lot in terms of governance. I mean, I can't tell you how many annexations they did. The city of Carmel actually had a fairly small footprint within its township. I mean, it took 20-something years of with litigation going to the court of the state going to the court of appeals multiple times to essentially annex that entire township he, he essentially took over the footprint of the area and then invested a lot in these amenities and i think this is where a lot of the controversy comes in they realized they didn't really have a downtown certainly not one big enough for their city so that's where they built the city center thing and they built a lot of what i would call non-standard amenities including most notably a $175 million acoustically perfect concert hall. It was designed by the same person who did the uh, Schirmerhorn Center in Nashville, where the Nashville Symphony plays. So it's a, a neoclassical type uh, structure. You know, it's, it's, you know, very, very nice, but like paid for 100% with public funds. And originally their plan was to raise an endowment to pay for operations. They weren't able to do it. So I believe this, the city is essentially paying for operations. Um, but I can tell you, and I have multiple independent sources, pro and con Carmel, who've confirmed this to me, that the cultural, some of the cultural institutions in Indianapolis were out talking to rich people, lobbying them not to donate to this thing. I mean, they're so hated. Some of the failure uh, of their ability to raise money was probably not due to just that people wouldn't have. It's like they had other institutions lobbying people not to give money to them. That's a rare situation to find yourself in. But but that's the sort of thing that became very controversial, borrowing that kind of money 
to build something that very few other places have done. Although I would point out many other similar type suburbs are now building performing arts centers, generally not quite at that level of spending, but a 60 to $80 million spend wouldn't be out of the question. So they built some of those things. They built some theaters. Um, they focused on the arts. They focused on this new urbanism and trying to to put in place this this kind of mixed use environment. They built you know rail trails, and the rail trail has overpasses in every major street or underpasses, and you know, you know so they get all these interconnected bike trail networks. So they spent a lot on infrastructure and amenities. The idea being we're going to have a quality of life that is extremely high and that people are going to want to buy and you just can't get in any of the other places, which I think is basically true. Now, whether that will over the long term be an attractor of people is, is you know, the market has yet to render its verdict, but that was essentially their strategy. We're going to, we're going to build out first class infrastructure and amenities here that are directly modeled on the most elite communities in the United States saying that we're not in competition with next door fishers or with, you know, Greenwood on the South side. We're in competition with La Jolla. We're in competition with Naperville. We're in competition with similar types of places all over the country and all over the world. And we have to have the amenities that appeal to, you know, top surgeons, top law partners, corporate CEOs, et cetera. And that's basically their strategy. I'm glad you described it as the opposite of strong towns because it's been kind of a weird thing for me to sit and watch this place go through quite rapidly the, the changes that they've gone through and have people say like, Chuck, isn't this what you want? Isn't this what you're trying to like, look, people can walk and bike. Look, you know, you've got a nice downtown. Look, you're putting money into the, the arts and parks and other things. Isn't this what you're after? And it's really the assembly. It's the assembly. So, Here's my question for you to kind of start to, to get at what I think is like the underlying conundrum of Carmel. There had to have been like the equivalent mindset in 1920s Detroit of like, look, cities have been bad places for a long time. And uh, there's been, you know, tenements and congestion and lack of good air circulation. We got this figured out. We're going to go and invest huge sums of money into putting these highways through here, tearing down buildings to open things up. We're going to build, you know, what we know as experts today to be the best kind of living arrangement, this new kind of modern, you know, we've traveled the world, we've seen other things, we, we, we know what works. We're going to go out and build it. And for a while, it was like the greatest thing around. We all copied it. In the long term, it's proven to be not just the wrong approach, but this colossal, horrible failure that, that has hurt a lot, a lot of people. How do we have confidence today in Carmel that we've got it figured out? It feels like to me what Carmel's on is something with a binary outcome. It's either going to work spectacularly or it's going to fail catastrophically. What am I missing with that question? There's some truth to that in, in the sense that they are building things that are essentially the best practices du jour. Historically, uh, best practices have often proven to be very poor practices. Now, the thing is, if anything goes wrong with what they've done, they're going to have plenty of company. 
because I can tell you that if you go to downtown Indianapolis or any other city in America, go to Brooklyn for that. I'm always stunned at how some of the stuff they're putting in in Williamsburg uh, or in parts of Queens looks exactly like what's going into uh, all of these other cities all over the country. And so there's a, there is a certain – it's not like Detroit went out and did something that nobody else did. Detroit went out and did the things that everybody else was doing. And you know, I think Carmel, you know, was a, has been a leader in some respects on things like roundabouts. Maybe they helped create that market. You know, they've certainly been evangelists for it. Everybody looks good when they're in their growth phase. The question happens is when you hit the end of your growth phase, and you have to start thinking like an operator, sort of like a retailer. You see this with the retailers all the time, or a hot restaurant chain. They grow, grow, grow. They're an unstoppable juggernaut. Then they reach market saturation, and they kind of wander in the wilderness. And so I will think Carmel, like every suburb, is going to face a moment of truth when it's built out, when the things that it's building now get old and have to be maintained, and it has to reinvent itself. I think that's going to be an interesting challenge for them. But that's going to be the challenge every single other – no matter what strategy you do, you're going to face that challenge at some point. They are just actually maybe a little ahead of the curve and that they're they're sort of reinventing themselves while they're still growing. But that doesn't mean that they won't have to reinvent themselves again in the future. And, you know, that will be a challenge for, you know, a future generation. I mean, everything that they're building has to be maintained. That's going to be a very interesting, interesting challenge for them, no doubt. But even if we did nothing or just said, let's just let the marketplace kind of organically do whatever, you know, you're still going to face that at some point. I want to delve in a little bit into the use of debt. You said, you know, they're making these big investments so that when they get to what they're calling build out, you know, when they get to like the end state, they've got a first class thing and they're, they're not playing catch up. Part of the phasing of that is that they take on a lot of debt now today to make these investments that they are projecting will pay off in the future. What is the risk in that? I think we have a shared mutual understanding of what the risk is in that, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to kind of directly speak to that. Is there an inherent risk in that approach and what is it? The city has somewhere around a billion dollars in debt, which is, you know, I think the common figure that's thrown out there. Uh, there was a chart that you published that was put together by the mayor of Kokomo, actually, by the way, uh, who's, who's in the county, couple counties north of there. He was just he wasn't making a, a jab at Carmel or anyone else. He was sort of like trying to show the I have the least debt. <laughs> He's kind of, Look how low my debt is. I'm lower than all these other cities that are the same size or bigger. But I think that chart said there was around 10,000 per capita uh, in debt. I wonder if that includes interest payments. And I think there's some there's some questions about it. Um, but what I would say is I would divide the debt. There's a lot of debt. So there is a lot of debt compared to other communities in the state. I think that that's that's fair to say. There's a few things I want to put in context. One, Indiana municipalities do not have any unfunded pension liabilities. It's possible that they have some some OPEB, unfunded OPEB, retired health care. I don't know what their situation is, but it's certainly pretty modest. So all of those crippling pension liabilities that are going after communities in other states is really not a problem in Indiana. Mitch Daniels bailed out every single community in the state when he did tax reform at the state level. So the state absorbed essentially all local pension liabilities. So that's one piece of another kind of debt that they don't have at all. And when you look at their debt, I really divide it into three categories. Traditional infrastructure, 
developer subsidies and non-traditional amenities. And I don't have the breakdown of that, but each chunk is significant. I look at like developer subsidies and everybody hates developer subsidies. What's a developer subsidy? It's a typical one would be you, you create a TIF and the TIF captures the value of that development and then it's used to finance the infrastructure for the development, maybe a parking garage or some streetscapes around it. Carmel definitely does that, but every other city in America does that. New York City does that. Hudson Yards got developer subsidies. You know, so immediately seen that seen the news that Nashville, Tennessee was putting a moratorium on TIF, which basically a temporary one, while they figure out a policy, which goes to show you that one of America's greatest boom towns is using TIF to subsidize development. So what they're doing there is essentially exactly what everyone else is doing especially in these urban environments. And so I think that's just very par for the course. The non-traditional amenities, like the mostly the Palladium, which was, again, $175 million, that's where I think that people could be – there's like a, a much more debate over, wow, is that a great idea. I have personally been on record as saying I would not have built that Palladium. I, I would not have built some of that stuff. Um, now, that's one where I think the mayor, if you ask him – did you really need that palladium? He would say, no, we don't need that. The question is about what, not what the minimum we need is, is what kind of community do we want to have? And he's made that case. And so I think that's one that's sort of a matter of opinion, but certainly represents a significant chunk that could be somewhat debatable. And then the rest of it is really, and like a lot of it, maybe the majority of it is traditional infrastructure debt. So right now they have a huge street program, uh, street and drainage program undergoing a $250 million bond that they issued. You know, I would just argue that you have a street liability, no matter whether you actually build the infrastructure or don't build the infrastructure, you're going to pay one way or the other. Uh, Justin Fox, the uh, Bloomberg reporter, uh, just drove through there. He just wrote a, a piece for Bloomberg. He's like, yeah, I was in Fishers. I'm stuck at traffic lights. I'm stuck behind people turning left. I cross into Carmel. Everything is essentially free flowing. He's like, I wanted to hate it, but the truth is the driving is good there. And so they've they've invested in the infrastructure so that their traffic is far better than other places. They have parks, you know. So in a in a sense, you know, the eighty three million another eighty three million dollar bond was for uh, water infrastructure upgrades. We know what happens when you fail to maintain your infrastructure. So I think in a sense, some of the debt is just them surfacing to the explicit level what is implicitly present in other communities' unfunded liabilities. You know, I think, again, you can have a debate over the levels of spending and whether they're appropriate. There's been a constant source of political debate there. Most of the elections are fought on that basis now. And I think, in general, the, the communities continue to vote in, in favor of this stuff. And especially given the generally low tax rates in the state and otherwise, you know, my belief is this community can pay off the debts. I think the idea that they're, they've taken on so much debt that they can't pay it off, I don't see that happening. In fact, some of the early bonds from when uh, Brainerd first took office, I mean, he's been in office longer than the 20-year duration of a uni bond. The first thing he did when he came in, I, I believe one of the very first things was to borrow money to build this road called Hazeldale Parkway, which was the archetype of all the future road projects, just gorgeous you know, suburban parkway. Those bonds are paid off. So they've taken on additional debt, but they haven't been forced into, for example, what Chicago's doing with scoop and toss. We just have to roll this debt over 
because we can't afford to pay it off. They've, I think they, they've started paying off the bonds. Again, their tax rates incorporated municipalities, cities in the state, certainly cities, there's cities and towns. And among cities, they're like sixth lowest in the state in terms of their, their tax rate and their property taxes. And so they have not shown up in their taxes or, or in their inability to refinance that they are at some sort of a maximum, you know, that they're, they're, they're in a true financial hole. Uh, although if, you know, if there were some sort of mass abandonment of the community, you know, by high income earners, for example, you know, they could conceivably run into challenges in the future. But again, the, the payback period on most of these bonds is 20 years. So it would have to be a fairly near term, sharp downturn, I think, before they would end up in a lot of challenges. Um, again, there's just no substitute community in the region for people who want to build, you know, $15 million estate homes. There just aren't other places like that. So they've, they've essentially got a hammer lock on certain types of things. They've got essentially the nicest office district, you know, in, in the state outside of downtown Indianapolis. And so the fact that they don't have a lot of substitutes right now, which has been the biggest challenge with a lot of other places, the suburbs that fall into decline were just typical, you know, bedroom communities. And there are many, many substitutes. I even think Jane Jacobs talked about, yes, the most upscale of these gray districts she talked about managed to hold their value. So, I, you know, I think that, that upscale areas have tended to have more staying power, not guaranteed, not guaranteed, but they tended to have more staying power. Uh, I'm not as concerned on the debt as, as some people are. I would be more questioning the appropriateness of an individual expenditure, right? If I were there, I'd probably be saying, gosh, do we really, you know, do I want to spend money on this? I might have a disagreement of opinion, but that's not necessarily like something that's like, oh, you know, we're going to bankrupt the community if we build this thing. I don't think it rises to that level. It does seem like this is the way that I look at debt, particularly municipal debt. It does seem like if there were a problem in Carmel or in any other city that is, you know, on a, on a debt binge in a sense, Debt is a really easy way to cover that up and to not have to deal with it. We've seen in Carmel, I, I remember last year, the, uh, the whole kind of fiasco, and I don't even know what happened with it. The idea of spending a bunch of money to bring the, uh, the wooden carousel to town. The carousel. And I mean, th- those are silly things in the context of the overall, you know, city budget. And, and I'm, I'm not going to be here to like hold that up as like, see, look at this example of prolificacy. To me, it was another one of those indications where anything that would be a constraint has been thrown out. Let me give you an analogy. I remember when I was in graduate school and my wife and I were looking for a place to stay. Uh, We had a house up here where I live in the Brainerd area. We were going down to Minneapolis, St. Paul. We wound up buying a house and we wound up buying a house because it actually was going to be a cheaper payment each month. And we had the cash that we could put into it as a down payment. The funny thing is, is I felt we were really, really stretched and I didn't know how we could qualify for this house. I was really nervous. The bank would reject us. We met with them and we were, it was a $130,000 townhouse. It was a small little place. They actually said, why would you look at this? You actually qualify for this you know, half million dollar place up the block. And I remember looking at that 
going, there's a huge gap between what I know that I can afford and what like the banks, the rating agencies, everybody else is saying that I can afford. It feels like in Carmel, we're dealing with the latter. And I, I listened to you say, you know, every city's doing this, agreed. Maybe not to the extent that Carmel is, but, but I think every city is, is doing this to a degree. I don't think it ends well. But the question I have is, what is the thing that constrains bad decisions? If you can make an unlimited number of bad financial decisions and essentially use debt to not suffer any consequences for that, at least not for decades, at what point do you have to have a reckoning with that? That's my like primary problem with, with Carmel's debt. And I'm wondering how you would react to that. You know, the carousel is a perfect example of what I would call, you know, the non-traditional amenity. In fact, it was controversial, and the city council ended up removing the funding for that, the bond. Uh, although I would not be surprised if there's a carousel there at some point in the future. We just put it to that way. They've had these debates. You know, one of them was, you know, part of it has been, you know, the, the ultimate constraint, right, is the political process. And for much of the current, you know, the, the, clearly the driving force between much of what's happened is 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 Mayor Jim Brainerd, who's really a visionary mayor. You know, he's often had to contend with a hostile city council, sometimes controlled by people who, you know, did not like what he was doing. And so um, there have been times when they they wouldn't approve different things. And so, like in, I mean, I think in the last election, there's essentially a, a slate of councilors. Uh, who were supportive of his agenda ran for council and they won overwhelmingly. So I think repeatedly, you know, it's not like this is, it's not like what happened in Chicago. In Chicago, nobody knew how bad the finances were until I would say 2010. Uh, you know, this Crane Chicago business wrote this piece called something about Mayor Daley runs up big debts building his global city or something like that. And that sort of like started shining a light on the debt. And so before anybody knew it, like, oh my gosh, how deep is this hole? Whereas I would say in Carmel, there's been a robust political debate over all of these points. And ultimately the people who live there have voted in favor of the spending. It's not like we're gonna buy this carousel before anybody knew what happened, you know, the carousel was bought. Now, I'm sure some of the critics would say, well, they actually um, deliberately lowballed the price on some things and they ended up spending more. It's possible that that has happened in a couple cases that there's been, you know, cost overruns that you might say, well, it was sold as one and it turned out to be another. For example, it, the city could not raise the money for the endowment to pay for the operations of the palladium. But I would say just as a general rule, I mean, in, in terms of like political debate – over major civic decisions, there's probably been vastly more of it in Carmel than there has been everywhere else. I mean, I'll tell you, like in Indianapolis, a lot of stuff just happens. It's a fait accompli, and rarely is there debate on a lot of things, and rarely is there you know a, a lot of you know subsequently informed opposition. Because I think in Carmel there have been multiple people, and it's going to happen in municipal elections or next year in Indiana. There's going to be, once again, people running, making the debate over what should and shouldn't be spent, and pendulums swing back and forth. So I feel like the check on what they've been doing ultimately has been the political process, 
And I would say the people who live in Carmel at this point, there was much more debate earlier on. Now that things are so far advanced, there's no appetite, you know, in Carmel to go back to the old pre-Brainerd way of building their city. Let me point out what I think is like a contradiction in what you just said. And, and I'm doing this respectfully. I'm trying to get at something I, <laughs> I feel is a little bit amiss here. Earlier in the conversation, you said, we, we have this vision that we're building to build out so that when we get to the end, it's great and it's going to last. Despite the, the risk and the debt and the other things that we're doing to get to this, what we're doing is essentially, and this is not how you said it, but I'm going to phrase it this way. We're going all in on a vision because we think that vision has staying power long term. You're also now describing a messy, I think very real and complicated system where not everyone buys into that vision and there's going to be pushback, change, maybe a pullback from that vision at some point. Maybe people get cold feet and say, I'm not sure that this is going to work. Let's not invest everything we've got in it. Doesn't the latter become like the self-fulfilling prophecy that ruins the former? Don't you wind up in this position where like, again, it's, it's binary. It's either going to be all perfect or not. Yeah, I think the mayor, it's very clear that the, the vision for the city has come from the mayor. He's, you know, laid it on the line many times through in the case of enormous opposition and said, I know there's not unanimous consent, right, on this thing, but let's put it to the test of the ballot box and see where we land. And I think over time, essentially a consensus developed about some level of what's going on. Now, what I will say is that he's running for re-election, I think for a sixth term. I think the big issue is going to be what happens when Brainerd is no longer in office. I'm kind of surprised to see that he's running for re-election. He must feel that there's more he wants to do. I would assume this, indi- this indicates that he's got a, a further uh, agenda that he wants to accomplish. There's many different ways of um, many different ways in which cities organize themselves in order to get things done. Uh, for example, in Indianapolis today, the mayor's office is very weak. Traditionally, there's been kind of civic coalitions of you know movers and shakers, mostly outside of government, who develop and create the initiatives to go forward. Uh, for example. That was the case with the plan to build a bus rapid transit system. It was sort of developed by the local corporate council in kind of a coalition they assembled. And the mayor of the city at the time, who was Republican, uh, Greg Ballard, he supported it. And they went forward with it. Well, then Ballard, you know, stepped down and run for re-election. A Democrat, um, Joe Hogsett, comes in. In a lot of places – that that transit plan would have just got pitched in the in the trash, because the new guy would have said I'm going to put my own stamp on this. But in Indianapolis, it didn't. It actually went forward. The new guy wasn't necessarily an enthusiastic endorser, but he didn't stand in the way of it. The referendum approved it. Now they're building it. So they've they've created a system that transcends party and mayoral administration. Now it's weak in important areas. So their infrastructure is abysmal because a lot of those a lot of problems can only like zoning and infrastructure really need to operate in a political context. They've been weak at that, but they've been strong in other ways. And they've had a lot of consistency over multi-generations of leadership. Carmel is essentially a very mayorally driven system, maybe similar to Chicago in that respect. And so just like Chicago is facing what's going to happen post-Rahm Emanuel, I would say that 
the, the challenge for Carmel was going to be what happens in the city post uh, Jim Brainerd. I don't know that there's an obvious successor to him. In fact, some I think one of his previous opponents was somebody who had been a former ally who I like hoped to step into his shoes and then realized Brainerd wasn't going to go anywhere. So he ran against him. Uh, so I think that when that political transition happens and Brainerd is no longer the mayor, then there's going to have to be some essentially post-Brainerd political you know, arrangement. And that's where I think there is a, a risk of things going sideways uh, in terms of, of you know, what the future looks like. Let me give you the narrative, because I, I think you – you know, you asked the question, you know, why would he run again? He must have things he wants to accomplish. I don't know him and I don't have any ill will or nefarious thoughts towards him. I can give you a very human reason why someone would do that <laughs> to prevent the fragile things from unraveling. I think you see this all the time where someone has built kind of a cult of personality, kind of fragile edifice and, uh, you know, their legacy is if I step away from this, it's going to collapse. I'm going to stay here and, and keep it going. It, it has a little bit of like a setting up a little bit of like a Vietnam narrative to me where it's like you, you get done and it didn't work out. And there's a certain faction that's always going to believe we were doing the right thing. We just weren't committed enough to it. If we had only just you know, been, been as deeply committed as that guy was, we could have seen this thing through as opposed to like, maybe we never should have gotten into this mess in the first place. Those are human narratives. And I think people will naturally fill them in. It seems to me like at the very least, they're both equally plausible narratives <laughs> sitting here in 2018. You kind of ascribe to one and I may ascribe to other. Are these equal narratives or am I not seeing something you are? If he if two terms ago he had stepped away, then it's possible that they would have gone back to the status quo ante of the style of, of, of development they did. Now, are they going to continue? If he left, would they continue issuing infrastructure bonds? I don't know that they would. But there's nobody there who's going to think it was a mistake to have built these roundabouts. It was a mistake to have built our parks. It was a mistake that we invested in our water system. I think there's certain there may. Be debates over many things, but I don't think it's going to be, it's not going to go back to the way it was before him. That's what's I think different here is that he's pushed the ball so forward already that even if they decide to go, well, we need to ease off the spending here for a while and kind of go into a more maintenance pattern. There's certainly not going to be a, let's go back and just build strip malls. They're not going to, they're not going to do that. I feel like in a little way, you're you're saying from a policy standpoint, no one's going to reverse this. And I agree with you, but I think that's the same thing as saying like Republicans who ran on, you know, we're going to get rid of Obamacare, get ultimate power in Congress and can't repeal it. It's not that they can't repeal it because it's a great idea. That's got, you know, great. It was, uh, you know, the most wonderful program ever. It's because they, at that point, they don't have a viable policy alternative. You know, I look at Carmel and I'm like, yeah, they're not going back. I mean, they're on this course. Like I said, I, it feels like a binary outcome to me. I don't know how the next person reverses it. And, and I feel like that's part of the, the fragility of it is that that place has not given itself any alternative path if this one proves to not be the right one. What is the alternative path? Because I think that's one of the things you need to ask. You know, in Indiana, the main alternative path is 
the main alternative path is essentially the Tea Party path, which is essentially traditional low-end suburban development. When he came into office, let's say there are 50,000 people in Carmel. They've doubled in population. He's been there 20 years. You know, I, I just wonder if you're that kind of – if you're a traditional sprawly suburb, you know, with some edge city offices and not much of a downtown and all these things, what is the alternative path? What is the strong town solution when you're not just a historic – you know, you're not a historic town like I think you're usually – you're used to dealing with in like Brainerd with this nice downtown and all these nice 19th century building and fine grain lots – you're sitting on a on a growing 5,000-person suburb that's going to be on its way to wherever, probably because of the existing way it's platted. What is your what is kind of the alternative to this to take that in a sustainable direction? I feel like that's your strongest argument <laughs> because because <laughs> my response to that would be like, what do I do? And I would say, you're a rural place. You're not going to experience that level of growth. You're going to have to build in a you know more town centric kind of way. I think what they said is that we got all this growth. We're, we like the growth. The growth helps us. We're going to go for broke. Like, let's go for it. And, you know, it's I like, it's a tiger by the tail, no matter what they do. Right. I, I, I feel like, you know, the strongest pro Carmel argument there is, is one that compares itself to the other surrounding suburbs and say, you know, which would you prefer behind door A or behind door B? And, and for me, what's lacking in that is, you know, what we would call a strong towns approach, something that would say, all right, let's replicate this urban form in a more organic way out here in places where we have people coalescing and coming together. As you point out, that was not on the menu. And, you know, I, I think that that is one of the, uh, one of the things we're trying to change is to get that on the menu. That being said, it doesn't, it doesn't make me more comfortable with, you know, a menu of things that I think will kill you eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the key there, I mean, if I were to take the strong towns critique of Carmel, it wouldn't be about the debt. You know, if I were to put myself in your shoes, I would critique the debt. I would critique the fact that it's inorganic. And then in essence, especially in the central area, Essentially, the city is the master planner and the developer. The city is the, the de facto developer of much of what's going on. Like the Midtown area, the city got site control somehow. So the city likes to get site control. Then they're in a position to kind of advance the agenda. So they, they hired Jeff Speck to do a master plan. And so Jeff Speck did a master plan. And then essentially developers kind of are, are recruited to fill in the plan. I would say they, they would agree uh, with what I'm saying, and they would just they would say it's an asset for them, is that essentially the city has been very directive in driving the ship in terms of what gets built and where. Essentially, the city has been the de facto master developer, certainly in the central area where a lot of the new urbanism is. And so it really isn't something that necessarily arose out of a you know marketplace, organic developers coming in and just doing what projects they think would be making sense for them within the constraints that are there. It's like, if you come in, if you want to play there, you have to be kind of in line with the city's vision. Now, I think again, it happens in urban areas. If you went down to Massachusetts Avenue and in downtown Indianapolis, they've got the same thing. The city has an idea of what they wanted to see along that corridor. So I'm not saying that that's a, that's a, that's a foreign concept, but I, I think if you were going to critique them, I would critique them on the fact that it was city. The city is just the master developers. It's inorganic in essence, rather than on the debt. 
that would be my, that would be my. I hear well. you. I feel like there are places where the city can be the master developer. Like I'm not like wrote, reject that. But I think what Carmel's done is they've envisioned the, the finished built out state and then skipped the organic processes to, to get to that. They've just said, you know, here's, here's the finished form that we envision. It is not in a startup phase. It's in like, you know, the mature phase. And then we're going to go out and use our capacity as a city to, to take on debt and to, you know, leverage things to build to that final form. And, you know, while Jeff Speck is brilliant, I mean, I, I admire the guy. If I were going to do this, he would be the type of person that I would want in there to help envision this. I still question the capacity of, of any one individual to know what will be resilient two decades from now, four decades from now, a century from now. When we're building cities, there's no, like, there's no end of the game. You know, there's no fourth quarter where the clock winds down and you declare victory and you go on. The, the game just continues on and on and on. Yeah, I mean, I say if I were them, you know, what I would say is, yes, of course, we were the master planner because if we left it to, you know, whatever people wanted to bring us, they would bring us crap and developments that we know and we have experienced in our own community are going to collapse in very short order. And in fact, the stuff that we're building is built on the site of those failed previous projects. So that's kind of how I would come back if I were them. I think they would be very, very uh, strong in saying, yes, we have taken a much more directive approach. But again, everything eventually gets old <laughs> and has to be redeveloped. So, you know, nothing is, is redevelopment proof. Um, but, but I would say, you know, in general, you know, I, I just think like if I were going to live in suburban Indianapolis, where would I where would I live? I mean, I would I, I think Carmel would be the top of my list. I would want to live. It's the kind of community that people like me would be drawn to want to live in. And and so I think that that's really kind of the goal of it. And I think they've succeeded at that level of creating a community that has desirability at essentially the national level in a way that a place like Indiana hasn't necessarily done it. That's not to say that. You know, people from all over the country are streaming in there. But if you're trying to attract people to live in, I'm trying to recruit an executive to work at, you know, Eli Lilly, and they're coming from California or they're coming from, you know, the Northeast. You can they, you can show them Carmel and they're like, hey, I can live here with my family. And you see that it makes it it's I think that they built something that people from anywhere in the country would say I can live here. And that's an accomplishment, I think, from the Midwest perspective. I don't have a strong opinion on this, but I, I feel like I want to ask you this question is maybe like a last thing to explore. I think part of the pushback that Carmel gets and you, you referenced the sports earlier and you know, we get that where there's a small town up here and it's kind of fun when you can go down and the plucky small town beats our football team beats the, the big city rich people. You know, if you were sitting in the governor's office looking at, at this, do you think that it's healthy for the region to have essentially one city be a wealth magnet and, you know, the other cities, you know, not have that? I don't ask that in the lines of like, let's redistribute Carmel's wealth or let's prevent them from being successful. But is the response now then that like every suburb should try to follow this? Like every suburb should go out and build a palladium and a, you know, a downtown Jeff Speck design to a finished state. And like, that's the, that's what should happen as a public policy for the Indianapolis region. 
Or is this something where, you know, you would advise like a governor looking at this saying like, this is way screwed up. We got to, we got to, you know, for the sake of the region, do something different. Well, I think it's, it's interesting you bring that up. I would say one, there are tremendous resentments of Carmel in much of the state, certainly in Indianapolis, rather than seeing Carmel as sort of an asset to the region that not everybody has to be the same, but you need all different kinds of communities. Everybody needs to know their role on the team. I like to say, and everybody needs to bring their game. I mean, the people in Carmel, certainly anyone in leadership there are avid supporters of things being great in downtown Indianapolis. I don't think that the reverse is true. And I do think that there has been an unhealthy social bifurcation of kind of city and suburb there that has not traditionally been the case in in that region. In that, you know, now with these like this performing arts center and different things and you know in Carmel, that, you know, the people in Carmel go do their things in Carmel now. And the people in the city don't ever want to go up there and maybe do their own things. I think it's still, you know, still people in Carmel come into downtown to do things. But I get a sense that there may be some partitioning of the social networks in a way that's not healthy. Two two governors ago, uh, Mitch Daniels, you know, he was a super cost cutter guy, used to talk about can't have any gold plated projects. He vetoed some libraries that some other communities wanted to build because they were too expensive. You know, he used to live in the Geist Reservoir area of Indianapolis. He actually moved to Carmel. <laughs> so I think he moved there. So even a guy who was like a, a hardcore fiscal conservative moved there. And I do think the other communities have, have upgraded. Fundamentally now, I, I the, the it's a Republican town, obviously. I think the Republican governors, I think, basically get it that Carmel is – they need to have a place like Carmel in the state. I think their focus is going to be building up other areas. So one of the things Mike Pence did was this regional cities thing where they essentially gave money to South Bend, Fort Wayne, and Evansville to help invest in capital projects in regions around those cities. It's an interesting question. The legislature has been somewhat hostile to Carmel in that things Carmel did have now essentially been outlawed by by the state. One of them, they used to transfer money from one TIF district to another. I think they basically shut that down. I think they made it much harder to annex territory because of Carmel annexation controversies. Um, but essentially, it was sort of like they changed it after the you know the the horse was already loose. Uh, it may affect other places more than that. I mean, I would say every other community is at some level emulating the Carmel strategy, not at the scale. They're not building palladiums, okay? But they're saying we need to have a town center. We need to have better streets. We need to invest in roundabouts. They're doing it at a at something of a, a smaller scale. I think that it would be healthier for the region if there was the perception that there were other places besides essentially Carmel and the north side of Indianapolis where, you know, that's where wealthy people would move. And, if, and in fact, there are a few places. Zionsville is one. There's an area on the south suburbs that's also fairly upscale. It's mostly reputationally, I would say, that, that, that Carmel is, is the place. Um, but yeah, I, I think that every community should be distinct from each other. They all need to find some unique thing because if you're just a generic suburb, you're gonna. It doesn't matter what you do, you're gonna go down the tube at some point. So that was kind of a rambly answer. No, no, but. it's very good. I, I was just gonna end things right there. I thought it was a. I thought it was a good place to end. One more thing about about Mitch Daniels. Yeah, go ahead. He's now the president of Purdue University. 
And if you look at what Mitch Daniels has done at Purdue, it is not dissimilar from what is being done at Carmel in terms of its physical things. I mean, the main road through campus at Purdue, I look at it, I'm like, man, this is like the definition of a gold-plated project. This might be the nicest street in the whole state. He's got a massive billion-dollar public-private partnership developing the whole next side of the campus. So he's done essentially – now that he's essentially running a local government, he came to many of the same conclusions, I think, that Brainerd did about what he needed to do. The difference is with Mitch, he, he's, his, his financing system has been much different. I don't know how he's done it all. Obviously, he is a high-revenue-generating asset in Purdue. He's grown the school. But he's definitely taken a much more conservative financial posture in building it. They've frozen tuition. They've done many other things. Uh, and so I think that would be an interesting case study to contrast what's being done, uh, which I think is actually a lot of similarities between Mitch Daniels, Purdue, and, and Carmel in terms of physical improvements and master planning. Uh, I think there's a tremendous difference in the financing structures. And I think that would be a very interesting case study for people to do. That's Aaron Wren. Aaron, what's the best place for people to reach you? Uh, well, you know, my personal website is urbanofile.com. It's uh, urban, uh, the letter O and P-H-I-L-E.com, the lover of cities. Um, I post all of my stuff there. You know, I should also plug, you know, my work I do for the Manhattan Institute and City Journal, uh, which you can also find me, uh, find me at those places as well. Sounds good. Thanks for taking the time here. And I appreciate you reaching out to me and we should keep this conversation going. I, I think we've got to dig into Carmel and, and understand it a little bit more even. All right. All right. You should, you should go take a visit. I'm sure they'd be glad to, to give you the tour. I've been there. I really enjoyed it, but I, I think I'd like to get in deeper. So yeah, let's make that happen. All right. All right. Take care. Thanks, Aaron. Bye. Bye-bye. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.